You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. The book of Matthew, chapter 1. You know, when you study any book of the Bible, it's helpful to look at some of the overarching features of what it is that you're studying. So we're in the New Testament, and we're specifically looking at what's called a gospel. Gospel just means good news, and it's a term that's been relegated to the first four books of the New Testament. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you want to get technical and confuse it more, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, which means that they're similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all were eyewitness testimonies of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and they appear to have borrowed material from each other, and they were written first. And then the disciple John came about later, and he had read those Gospels, and he was like, there's even more stuff that isn't in there. I'm going to write a story and a history of uh, Jesus' life that includes the stuff that they left out. So that's why John kind of stands apart, but it's four eyewitness testimonies, accounts of Jesus' life, his teaching, uh, his character, his nature, the way he talked to people, the way he walked, the way he worked, the way he lived, the way he served. And of course, when you do that, when you're studying about Jesus, you're learning about the character of God, the creator God of the universe. Jesus is the incarnation, the enfleshment. God come to dwell among us to show us what he is like. The particular gospel that we're going to study is the book of Matthew, which is attributed to the disciple Matthew, also known as the tax collector. He was a Jewish man from a Jewish background who betrayed his own people and basically uh, worked for the Roman Empire, the occupying force of the people of Israel, to raise taxes from his friends and neighbors to pay to Caesar which made him not so much well-liked. But he was exactly the kind of person that Jesus would attract because Jesus came and he, he invested in, he initiated with people who knew they had problems. And you couldn't be a tax collector in, uh, in uh, first century Israel for Rome and not know that you were an immoral person. You were doing, you were taking advantage of people. They were known for their uh, wild parties and their wild lifestyle. These were just known as people who were living on the outskirts of society against the traditions of what it meant to be a descendant of Abraham. And so when Jesus approached him, and showed him compassion, and showed him love, it changed his life because he knew he didn't deserve it. Which is exactly how the character of God works, and why so many of us have come into a relationship with God, is because he's done the same thing for us. We don't become Christians because we're good people living good lives. We become Christians because we, we break down We come to the end of ourselves and we see the futility of living apart from God. And we see what it's like when we live as though we are our own gods. And we eventually throw up our hands like Paul and say, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? 
I am screwing things up. There has to be a better way. And God says, I can work with that. Which is exactly what happened with Matthew. So he was one of the 12. He was one of the more intimate disciples. Jesus was his teacher, his Lord, his God, his mentor. He spent day in and day out observing, watching, and learning at the feet of Jesus Christ and had a front row seat for the amazing thing that God was going to do through Jesus for the entire human race. And to our good fortune, he wrote it down. Now, you might not think about the Bible this way, but specific books are often written to specific audiences. And if the goal of good biblical interpretation is not to just say, what does this mean to me or what can I learn from this, but what did the author mean? It helps to know a little bit about the background of the people that the, that the author had in mind when they wrote their letter. Most of the evidence in the book of Matthew, it's written before 70 AD, two people from a Jewish background who were interested in understanding who Jesus is. It's important that we understand that a lot of the prophecies of the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, were pointing to the idea that a Messiah would come, God would come physically and dwell among his people and rule them and lead them to freedom. And that many believed that around the first century was the time that the biblical prophecy indicated that he was going to come. So there were a lot of Jewish people that were on the lookout for the disciple, at the time, for the Messiah, at the time that Jesus was born. And so not all of the Jewish people who were waiting for the Messiah came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but that's one of the things that Matthew is very much interested in is helping his Jewish audience understand using Jewish ritual, Jewish custom, Jewish law, and the Jewish scriptures to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And so there's a, a, a flavor and an element where it's clear that Matthew is targeting a Jewish audience in the first century. And they wanted to know, what was, what was it about Jesus? What were his credentials? How does he fit with the Old Testament prophecies that predict the Messiah's coming? So the themes in the book of Matthew are things like, Jesus came to save sinful people something upon which Matthew himself was an authority. It's a lot about discipleship, what it means to live all out for God, to be not just somebody who believes mentally, but believes in action and in faith and invites all of us to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him of what it means to live the life that God made us for. Another major theme we see that runs throughout the book of Matthew is the sovereignty of Jesus. Jesus is the king of the universe, and this is his kingdom, and that we are his subjects. And so it has an emphasis on this, on this authority of Christ as the ruler of the world. So we get to chapter 1, and it starts with Jesus' genealogy. 
Genealogies are something that when we run into in the Bible, we often skip those parts because they seem incredibly boring. But again, this is part of the evidence of what it is that Matthew's trying to do is he's trying to help a Jewish culture. And in Jewish culture, your ancestry was of critical importance because it was connected with your family, your history, but also your role in society. Depending on what tribe you were born into would affect the kind of work that you could do. If you wanted to be a priest in Old Testament times, Jerusalem, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. You had to be descended from the right people, or that was just a job that wasn't available to you. And there were very specific prophecies about the ancestry of the Messiah going back hundreds, even a thousand years, about where in the, the milieu of Jewish ancestry the Messiah would come from. And so for a Jewish person, this was an, a critically important proof of the reality of whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, because of course these would be things that Jesus couldn't orchestrate himself. If there's one thing you can't orchestrate, it's the family you're born into. And so this was of great interest to them. And these very specific prophecies they had available to them in the Old Testament, and they were looking to see, does he measure up? Some of these prophecies include things like the Messiah would be born of Abraham. In Genesis 12, 3, Abraham is the father of Judaism. He's sometimes called the father of faith. He was someone that God pointed out at a certain point. There weren't many followers of God on earth. He grabbed a hold of this guy and said, will you trust me? And he said, yes. And he started following after God. And he made the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. He said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you and through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to do something very special through the Jewish people. And so these are going to be your blood descendants that I do these things through. Not too long later, a descendant of Abraham was Judah. The 12 tribes of Israel come from the 12 sons of Jacob. Levi was not just a tribe. At a certain point, he was a man. Judah was a man. And when he was getting ready to die, he ordained his different sons for their descendants to play different roles. And Judah was to be the line of the kings of Israel. And the Messiah was to rule Israel as a king. So the Messiah needs to be Jewish, born from Abraham. He needs to be from the tribe of Judah in order to be a king. Hundreds of years later, there would be a king in the line of Judah whose name was David. And God had a very special relationship with David. David was known as a man after God's own heart. He wrote many of the Psalms. He slew Goliath. He overthrew the oppression of the Philistines. And God said to him in 2 Samuel 7, 16, I'm going to do something very special through you, David, son of Abraham, son of Judah. David, through your line, I'm going to bring about a king who will reign in perpetuity, 
who will reign over Israel forever. And of course, that could only be the Messiah. Interestingly, the Messiah also could not be descended from the king Jeconiah. Jeconiah was descended from Abraham. He was descended from Judah. And he was descended from David. But he was a terrible, wicked king. In the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian occupation, he failed his people, he betrayed God, and Jeremiah the prophet cursed him. And Jeremiah 22.30, he says, Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And from the Jewish perspective, this all was very important. This was legal code. Because God, the all-powerful creator God of the universe, cannot contradict himself. So the Messiah has to be from Abraham, from Judah, from David, and can't be from Jeconiah. So what is Jesus' ancestry? That would have been a very important question to them. And we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight reading the 40 names. But I promise it will hold some surprises. Matthew 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been, his, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Riveting, I know. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Iliad. Iliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now hopefully you caught some interesting aspects in what is otherwise not that interesting. Some peculiarities about this ancestry that Matthew provides regarding Jesus. This is the ancestry of Jesus inherited from Joseph. This is the way that your ancestry would typically go. It would go along the lines of your father's. 
you would inherit and be born into the, into the family of your fathers. And it contains Jeconiah. So for a Jewish audience who are like, wait a minute, Jeremiah said no descendant of Jeconiah will ever rule again, and yet the Messiah is supposed to rule Israel in perpetuity. How can you be descended from David and be under the Davidic covenant when you're also under the Jeremiah curse? Well, what we are seeing here are the credentials for a kingly line that fit to be a king of Judah, to fit with Abraham, to fit with Judah, to fit with David, but it conflicts with Jeconiah. And so they may very well have like been like, Matthew, why did you include that little detail? You should have thrown that out and just scribbled that name out because this proves that Jesus can't be the Messiah. It violates the curse of Jeremiah, and God cannot contradict himself. Except that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Oh, interesting. The whole virgin birth thing isn't just proof of a miracle of God, isn't just something Mary made up because she was embarrassed. It was something that had to happen in order for Scripture to be consistent with itself. David was legally a descendant of Joseph, but not biologically a descendant of Jeconiah. And so he's putting this in here because his Jewish audience would have been able to put this together. It was very well known that not only was Jesus born of a virgin, but the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And so he has the credentials of his father's house without the biology of being descended from Jeconiah. Another thing that's interesting is it's not, this, this genealogy isn't complete. It's selective. He goes in three sets of 14. He said 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the captivity, and 14 from now. He's selecting names. If you go back in the book of 1 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, these are largely records of genealogies in the Old Testament of important biblical characters. And you can find that these people, there are more names that these people are associated with that aren't mentioned. That's not really a problem because that wasn't unusual. This was the highlight reel. We just read 40 names, and that was the abbreviated version. And when uh, Jewish men would recite their genealogy, their ancestry, it was common that you didn't have to get everybody. You just sort of got the, the, the key figures, the kings and the people that, that would be known and understood to be your ancestors. So it's a highlight reel. It's also interesting because it's very different from Luke. The Gospel of Luke, written by Luke, who was a top-rate historian, the book of Luke starts by saying, listen, I've gone around and I have interviewed everyone who was alive and connected with the events surrounding Jesus' life. Luke wasn't a disciple. It's not clear that Luke ever met Jesus personally. Luke was a follower and a, and a disciple of Paul. But he was a first-rate historian, and he was very interested in recording the historical accuracy. And somewhere around the late 60s uh, A.D., 
the people who had lived and seen and been eyewitnesses for the things that had happened surrounding the life of Jesus were beginning to die off. And Luke said, we can't let this happen. We've got to go and interview all of them so we can get an accurate historical record of who Jesus is. And Luke has a genealogy of Jesus that's different from Matthew. And most people, it's so different. Most people and scholars believe it's actually the biological genealogy of Jesus as handed down through Mary, which would not have been, which would have been bad form in Jewish culture, unless, of course, your father was the Holy Spirit, in which case the only real biological genealogy that would be available would be that which came from your mother. And their great commentary, uh, the new Bible commentary, Guys like D.A. Carson and J.A. Motyer and uh, George Winham, right? Luke's list of Joseph's ancestors, even including his father, is different. Probably Luke offers us a physical family tree, while Matthew gives the official throne succession list, which would not necessarily pass from father to son, but would be remain with the family. His concern is with Jesus' right through Joseph to the title of king of the Jews. So, you know, none of this is available to us, just, you know, it's not apparent to a 21st century reader. So we might read Matthew and be like, why are all these names here? And so-and-so was the father of, I don't care. Like, why? But to the original audience, this was really important stuff. And the fact that Luke had a different account than Matthew was very important because they were looking for legal, scriptural evidence. And their question was, is this true? We want to say, how does it, we want to read this stuff and be like, how does it make me feel? And these genealogies don't make me feel very good, so I'm going to skip them. But if your goal is to understand the truth, then you have to dig into the culture and you have to dig into the history and you have to dig into why are these things being framed out this way and what does it mean? Another very particular and strange thing about the genealogy of Jesus that we just read in Matthew 1 is that it includes women. Did you notice that? It said so-and-so was the father of so-and-so who had the child of so-and-so by Rahab. To include women in a genealogy would have been very strange to the Jewish ear. You know, they had a, a relatively negative and low view of women in first century Israel, as they did in many parts of the world. Women were not given the proper respect, the proper homage that they should be. I was going to say as they are today, but I think some would argue we still have a ways to go. But the point is, is that why are these women included and is there anything that can be learned or gleaned? Like everything in Scripture has a purpose. And it's a selective genealogy. So why did Matthew select these women and include them in the genealogy when it doesn't help the cause in terms of following protocol and the historical forms of ancestries? So we take a look at who these women were and we get, he mentions Tamar in verse 3, he mentions Rahab in verse 5, he mentions Ruth in verse 5, and he mentions Bathsheba in verse 6. 
Why would these women be included? If you go and look up who Tamar is, you read about her in Genesis 38. She was not even Jewish. She was a Canaanite woman. So, and they're thinking not only is she a woman, which is a bad thing, but she's not even Jewish, which is a much worse thing. And why are we including her in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah? She married Judah's son Ur, which was very naughty of Ur to do. Ur died, so then she married Judah's son Onan, famous for things we shall not name. <laughs> Onan died. She was promised to the next son, Shelah, but rather than be passed around from brother to brother, Tamar had her own ideas. She dressed up like a prostitute and met her father-in-law, Judah, on the road and talked him into sleeping with her and got impregnated by her father-in-law so that she could have higher respect and rights in the ranks of the family, tore off her costume and was like, ha-ha, I'm your daughter-in-law, Tamar. And Judah was like, oh. Fascinating story. Why highlight that in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Rahab, Joshua chapter 2, also not Jewish, a citizen of Jericho, the enemies of God, the occupying force of Israel, Jericho, where the walls came tumbling down. Rahab, also a prostitute, living in the town that represented the blockade of the people of Israel to the promised land that God would destroy when they sent in spies to kind of get the lay of the land and figure out how they were going to take down this incredibly fortified city, they run into the prostitute Rahab. Don't ask me why they ran into the prostitute. Who decided to hide them when the king heard that, that Jewish spies were looking around, lied to the king, told the spies, I'm on your side. I heard about what your God did in Egypt, and I want to be with you. And they said, because you've helped us, you can be with us and like us, and you can be adopted into the Jewish family. And not only was she adopted in, she became the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. Fascinating. Ruth, who you can read about in the book of Ruth, was a Moabite, not a Jewish person, a foreigner who had married in and had pledged herself when her husband died to her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi had fled Israel because of a famine, and her husband had died, and her sons hooked up with a Moabitess, and then her sons died, and these two women were left alone in a foreign land without much help or understanding, not really allowed to own property or businesses for themselves, and sort of clung together, and God brought them along. They brought them back to the land of Israel, Ruth met an amazing guy named Boaz, who was a Jewish man who was wealthy, who treated her very well. They fell in love. It's an incredible love story of a man who treats a woman right with respect and care and concern, treats her like a child of God that she is. And she became Jesus' great, 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 great grandma. 
and was adopted into the Jewish nation. Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11, probably not Jewish either. She was originally married to a Hittite named Uriah. Bathsheba is not a Jewish name. And she was an adulterer who slept with the king of Israel while her husband was away. Not Definitely not all her fault. David was very much involved as well. David then got her pregnant in order to cover up his sin, murdered Uriah the Hittite, and took Bathsheba for his wife. Why are these stories involved in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus is from a very dysfunctional family. Think about this. Lying, murdering, prostituting, raping, swindling, sinners. All of them. Jesus is born into an incredible mess, a family of incredible dysfunction, so much so you'd have to say, these are real people. The family that Jesus was born into is a lot like your family and my family when you get down to it. Yeah, we have heirs and we like to, you know, keep the family skeletons in the closet, but God doesn't do that. Why would God in the forever preserved record of the birth of his son want to, to a Jewish audience, you say Tamar, and they're like, wasn't she married to Onan? And you say Rahab, and you're like, the prostitute? And you say Tamar, and they're like, the one that tricked Judah into sleeping with him? They are not like, ooh, I mean, these are not the hero women of the Bible who everyone wants to model like Rachel or Leah or Sarah. These are like the daughters of the patriarchs. These are women of ill repute that God grafts into his family. He brings them in and makes them a part of his grand cosmic design to rescue the human race from its own destruction. And they were real and they had problems. They were real people. Why would Matthew start this way? Because it's real. This is what humanity is like. And God had a fully human experience that included broken parents, broken grandparents, assorted history of immorality and the family history. He was born into the dysfunction that is the human race. He was an all-powerful creator of the universe, perfect being who had nothing to do with sin and unrighteousness. And he came and he plopped himself down right in the middle of all of our mess. And he hitched himself to it by taking on a body. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows the damage that we do. He knows the filth that's in our hearts. He knows how we think. He understands it. And while he doesn't engage in it, he's sympathetic to our 
plight. He doesn't stand high above us pointing the finger down his nose at us and saying, you filthy, disgusting people. He says, my children, my brothers, my sisters, my sons and my daughters, I am going to come and meet you where you are so that we can begin to change things together. God moves toward suffering people. This is why he was drawn to Matthew. Of course Matthew starts the genealogy of Jesus Christ by unearthing all his family's skeletons that they have in the closet because Matthew gets that. The thing that Matthew loves about Jesus is that Jesus moves towards sinners like himself. And the thing that he wants his audience to know at the very beginning is, you know, you might be a religious bunch who have a lot of airs and a lot of masks and a lot of pretending that you do, that you've got your life in order, but Jesus isn't like us. He tells the truth about who he is, and he moves towards the calamity. Mark 2, 17, Jesus says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. From time to time, people will come into this church, and maybe they've never been to church before, and they'll kind of come in, and they'll walk in through the doors, and they'll be nervous, and say, hey, how's it going? It's nice to meet you. My name's Ryan. And they're like, hey, I don't know if I belong here. They're like, why? And they're like, I was a little bit worried I'd get struck by lightning if I came into a church. And, you know, I always say the same thing. You're in good company. You're right where you need to be. Because such as were were all of us the first time we came through those doors. The reason you're here is because you've reached the point where you realize that, and now God can work with you. That's what God needs is not a bunch of people who are pretending to be righteous, but a bunch of people who are admitting that they have problems. Because that's exactly who Jesus came to save. God doesn't expect us to be clean. He knows better than we do our dirt. Romans 5.10 says, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. The picture that the Bible paints is not that Jesus came when we were finally ready to behave ourselves and be good and start treating each other well. And that God waits until we finally decide to live clean and good lives. And then he says, it's nice to meet you. I'm God, your creator. He comes right down to the middle of it while we are shaking our fist at him in defiance and saying, I don't want you. I don't want to know you. I will be my own God and I will live my life for myself. He comes into that and he dies for our sins. He lays it all down while we drive the nails into his arms and spit in his face and call him names, he cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. God is not like us. He doesn't operate the way we do. He doesn't think the way that we do. He is about love and truth. 
God wants us to be real about our problems. This is a prerequisite to a relationship with him. You have to admit, you got problems. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody, everywhere who's ever been born of a father and a mother has sinned. Moral plaque and falls well short of the glory of God. But God is the solution to those problems. Matthew 1.21, and she will have a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The great rescuer of the calamity of the human condition. So we're all from dysfunctional families. I don't care what your background is. I'm no prophet. But I know you've got serious skeletons in your closet because you're human beings. And if you're one of the lucky ones who's like, I had a pretty great childhood and things were pretty good, either you don't know your family that well or you need to go back just a couple more generations and you'll find some really nasty stuff there if you really look. You know, I th- some people think, you know, if, depending on where you come from, some people come from disadvantaged background and difficult, you know, come from poverty and they, they go up to the suburbs and they see everything bright and shiny and there's no garbage in the lawn and everything's manicured and mowed and they think what lives these people must live. But it doesn't matter how together you appear inside of those shiny homes with those manicured lawns is divorce, is pedophilia, is adultery, is rape. It's in all of our family trees. I was surprised, you know, uh, growing up, I lived a pretty privileged life. We had a very comfortable home. My, My parents, you know, loved us thought everything was pretty cool. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty darn good. We were comfortable. And suddenly my parents decided to get divorced when I was like 12 years old, and I didn't understand what was going on. And then I found out another family member had sexually abused another family member, and I, I, was, I just, I didn't get how that happened. I found out that in just a couple levels up my family tree, one of my family members as a child had been prostituted out by their mother during the Great Depression to keep things going and so that they could have food on the table. I found out that some other family members who I knew and was connected to were swingers. And that the one person who I thought I was related to and who had helped raise me wasn't even genetically connected to my family. And we're we're an upper-middle-class Worthington family. And you've got pedophilia, adultery, rape, right there, just a couple branches away. And I'll tell you something, in the 25 years I've been a pastor and I've been getting to know people, and you just get to a certain point where you really talk about real things in your life, I found the same thing in everyone else's family tree. 
We're all Ruths and Rahabs and Tamars. We all have the same genealogy, the same skeletons in our closet. Some are worse. Some are not as bad, but they're all bad. Every one of them. Because that's part of the tragedy of of the human experience. We're broken. We're living this life generationally forming long lines of broken, relating pain and suffering and betrayal. And we try to hold it together and Maybe we have a couple of good relationships and we form bonds and, you know, but we still hurt each other. You know, there's been nothing like that between my wife and I, but we still hurt each other and we still wrong our kids. Thank God it's not to the level of the things that we've been talking about and reading about, but, you know, my kids will have stories about how unreasonable and how I yelled at them for no good reason or I blamed them for something that they didn't do. And you just go back another generation and you find worse things and you go back another generation and you find even worse things. It's so close. It's just bubbling right below the surface. And when Matthew says, I'm going to start telling you about Jesus, he's like, I'm going to pull all the facade back and show you the reality of of what he did. And the fact that we're all this way and we all have this kind of brokenness in our, in our family tree doesn't give God a moment's hesitation to say, I want you in my family. John 1.12, but as many who has received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, all those who believe in his name. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter how disgusting your family tree is. It doesn't matter how far from God you have strayed. It doesn't matter the guilt and the crushing shame that you feel about what's in your closet. God wants you in his family because he loves you. He created you for the purpose of having a relationship with him, and we want you too. Because we are all just a bunch of broken people who have come to admit we need a Savior. One of the more shocking passages in all of the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, is Hebrews 2.11, talking about Jesus. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. God is not ashamed of us, and he's not ashamed to be related to us. If we could talk to God right now about you, he would say, that is someone I think is amazing. I'm so happy to have them in my family as my creation. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what we learn about Jesus from his genealogy, from the boring parts of the Bible, is that Jesus is the Messiah. There were hundreds of prophecies set up to confirm the identity of the true Messiah because God cares about truth. 
You could go and you can look at, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, come after this rebuilding of the first temple. He would be crucified. He would give sight to the blind. He would be preceded by a forerunner, buried in a wealthy man's tomb and rejected in his teaching. Just a few smidges, just a few of the small examples of the Old Testament prophecies talking about who the Messiah would be. All of that and, and, and hundreds of others fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. God wants us to be confident in who Jesus is. And I think Matthew also wants us to be aware of the importance of the boring parts of the Bible. All of it is important. If you're willing to do a little work and dig in, you'll find amazing things because we are talking about the character and the nature of God. He didn't waste any space in what he wrote down. There are mysteries and fascinating truths and correlating pictures that will create a grid for you of the reality of the human perspective, the human condition, that will change the way you see yourself and will change the way you see your fellow man. And in all of the Bible, you find out and you see the character, the heart, and the mercy of God dripping from every page. The reality of who he is. And that's Jesus' genealogy. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for who you are and that you come down into the middle of this mess and you do great things. Thanks for this book. We pray that you'll be with us, that you'll teach us all about you and who you are as we study through this. Pray that you'll give us that grid, that perspective, that we can see ourselves from your perspective, but more importantly, that we can see each other from your perspective. I pray that you'll be with us tonight as we fellowship and enjoy the great privilege of being together and pray that you'll be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.